So the New Testament um, is made up of the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They give us the account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, including his death, burial, and resurrection. Then we have the book of, the, of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, um, which give us the history of the spread of the gospel and the development of the church. These are followed by 13 letters written by the Apostle Paul. Then the book of Hebrews, which is more of a sermon than a letter. Then seven more letters written by James, Peter, John, and Jude. And then the book of Revelation, which is unique in its own right, especially in the New Testament. Now, of the letters, um, most are written to specific churches, the letters that Paul wrote. Most are, are written to specific churches, and Paul intended for them to be read aloud for the saints to hear. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We are starting today, last week was some background to the planting of the church of Thessalonica, but we are starting today a, a study of 1 Thessalonians, and so I'm going to read this. We're going to read the book, the letter, and then we're going to pray, and we will commit the hearing of God's word to his glory. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father of your, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we had given approval by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts." For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, 
while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one uh, be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer... I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. We, for now we live if, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving we can return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For, we, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gave his Holy Spirit to you. 
Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That indeed is what you are doing to all of the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, You may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another in these words. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today. Just even in the reading of your word, you have promised that your word will not return to you void. That the Holy Spirit uses your word to build up the saints So, Lord, I pray that you would do that this morning. I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is likely that when when Paul wrote this letter, 
Um, the church of Thessalonica was, was probably just a few months old. As we saw last week, Paul and, and Silas, who had led most of the saints there in Thessalonica to the Lord, they had been run out of town. And Jason and other brothers of the church there had been arrested and fined for inciting a rebellion, which were serious charges in the Roman Empire. You can imagine that this church was shaken. They were, they were confused. They were in need of, of genuine spiritual encouragement. And this kind of encouragement is, is so valuable that, that even the Apostle Paul needed it from time to time. It's likely that Paul wrote this letter um, probably from the city of Corinth where he once again would face Jewish opposition. Acts chapter 18 verses 5 and 6 tells us when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, that's here, Thessalonica, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So by the time he writes this letter, he's been, he's been asked to leave Philippi. He's been chased out of Thessalonica. Then the Thessalonian Jews actually chased him out of Berea as well. In Athens, he was mocked, although some believed. And then he ran into frustrations and opposition in Corinth as well. You can, you can almost hear the frustration in his voice. You can hear his exasperation with his own people. Remember, Paul, Paul was Jewish, and he loved his people so much that he would write in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They're Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Chapter 3, verse 2 of this letter tells us that he sent, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to minister to the saints that, that he had left there. And shortly after he arrived in Corinth, Silas and Timothy arrived with good news from this church, from the Thessalonian Christians. Listen again to chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. He said, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And so Paul writes this letter to express his joy in their faith. He's encouraged by this news of them and he wants to encourage them. He is thankful and he wants them to know that and he urges them to stand strong in this new faith, even in the face of, of opposition and persecution. But he also writes to teach or as one author put it, he writes to put them further along in the Christian way. 
He writes to advance them in their faith, to push them. Again, listen to how this epistle opens, just the very first verse. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now this, this actually is a common style of introduction for letters of the time and, and the culture in which the New Testament was written. And yet, there are some subtle differences in how Paul addresses this particular letter. So for example, Paul never just simply follows um, traditional or customary greetings of the day. So to use modern terms, think of it like this. If Paul were writing to a letter, uh, a letter to a church that he had planted today, he wouldn't begin his letter with, to whom it may concern, or dear sirs, I hope this email finds you well. No, there would be much more affection and familiarity. This isn't a form letter, right? And so Paul writes purposefully, and he means every single word. He cares deeply for the people to whom he is writing. There is much feeling and affection, even just packed into this opening verse, this very brief greeting. And the first thing that we see this that we see in here is that he's not writing this on his own. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now, normally when Paul begins a, write, a letter like this, he would identify himself. Here he just says Paul. But normally in his other letters, he would identify himself as being very specifically an apostle. In fact, the only letters that he doesn't identify himself as an apostle are these two letters to the Thessalonians, Philippians, and Philemon. Every other letter that Paul writes begins similar to, for example, how he opens Ephesians, which is like this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He always identifies himself, except for those four, he always identifies himself as an apostle. As a matter of fact, when he writes to the Galatians, he's writing specifically to rebuke them and to, and to correct them, and he's even more pointed. He says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So in many of his letters, Paul will exert his authority to convince them towards, towards godliness and holiness. But in the letters to the church of Thessalonica, and also Philippians, by the way, he's much more gentle and encouraging. And so he doesn't need to appeal to his apostolic authority. I mentioned that he also doesn't do this in Philemon either. And I think that that the Philemon, Philemon's actually helpful to illustrate this. So Philemon, there's just one chapter. So verses 8 to 10 says this. He says, accordingly, writing to Philemon, he says, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Do you hear how he's appealing to him? A little bit later in verse 17, it says this, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. 
If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me even your very own self. See, Paul has the Christ-given authority as an apostle to issue orders. And he does so when appropriate. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he commands the church to exercise church discipline. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, Paul is not afraid to exercise his apostolic authority when he needs to. But there in Philemon and, and throughout these letters to the Thessalonians, he makes no use of that authority. Instead, he chooses to be gentle among them, a point that he brings up several times. Look over at chapter 2, just verses 6 and 7. He says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. See, for the Thessalonians, for this church, the inherent authority of Paul's apostleship was not in question. And so he has no need to assert his God-given office. Now, I should mention that this letter, 1 Thessalonians, is, is we believe, one of the first letters that Paul wrote. Um, and so as later in his ministry, as Christ's church grows and spreads, and, and as false teachers arise and so forth, he will be hit with challenges to his apostolic authority. But here, the Thessalonian saints are eager to accept him as a brother. And so he is just Paul. He's just Paul. That's how he starts. Paul. But as he regularly does, he also names two of his co-laborers, both of whom had a hand in, in helping to plant this church. And these were faithful men who had accompanied him on his travels but they weren't just like assistants who helped carry his luggage and make reservations at the restaurants and hotels and things like that. They preached alongside Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20 gives us a little bit of insight. It says, As surely God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. They all preached among them. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So it's likely that they had some part in writing this letter. Probably as secretaries, they would help actually write down the words that Paul wanted to say. They would take dictation, possibly. But I think more likely, as often happens among elder boards, they helped him also to, to refine his words a little bit. At least that happens in ours, our elders. I may write some of the letters, but the guys are like, eh, you might want to word that a little differently. It's very helpful. But regardless of the extent of their involvement, 
Paul thinks very highly of these men. And he's commending them as, as co-laborers. And he's indicating that, th- that they have been commissioned, even possibly to deliver this letter to the church. So who were these two, Silvanus and Timothy? Well, Silvanus is a Greek rendering of Silas. Um, Silas is first introduced in Acts chapter 15 as one of the leading men of the brothers. So he was in some kind of church leadership by Acts 15. Remember, at that time, the the concept of elder and deacon, as we know it, as we see it, it hasn't been fully developed. It, It isn't fully developed until Paul gives his instructions to Timothy and Titus, for example. Peter will write about it as well. Um... The apostles were mostly still active in ministering. And so Silas, as a leading man among the brothers, was helping the apostles lead in some way. So, for example, Acts 15 also tells us that he was sent from the Jerusalem council to deliver a letter to the Gentile believers. And verse 32 of that same chapter calls him a prophet, which means he was gifted by the Holy Spirit to proclaim revelation from God. He preached... Then in Acts 16, we read that Silas actually took Barnabas' place as Paul's main associate on his missionary journeys. Timothy joined them soon after as sort of, at least at the beginning, a, a junior associate, if you could put it that way. Acts 16, 1 and 2 introduces him like this. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And this this young man named Timothy, he will go on to be one of Paul's most most trusted and faithful co-laborers. He calls him my, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. In another place, he calls him my true child in the faith. And it is it is this same Timothy who at the end of Paul's life. In the last letter that he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 1 and 2, Timothy will receive this command. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So these two men, Silvanus or Silas and Timothy, were faithful co-laborers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul's pattern of, of ministering as a team, ministering alongside others, that fits the overall New Testament pattern of a, of a joint ministry by a, by a plurality of spiritually gifted and, and qualified men. See, not only did Paul usually minister with co-laborers, but he also gave instructions that a a plurality of elders be placed in charge of the local church after he would leave. The most obvious example here is in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Every time elders, or deacons for that matter, are addressed in the New Testament every time. It's in the plural. Of course, Paul picked up that practice from Jesus, who not only had the 12, 
What we see in Luke chapter 10, uh, Luke tells us that when, that when he sent out his disciples to minister, he sent them out two by two. He sent them out in groups of at least two. This is the same principle in the Old Testament. Moses' father-in-law watched him, watched Moses essentially work himself to the bone by himself. And he said to him, you are not able to do it alone. So he set him up with a plan for co-laborers to work alongside Moses. We see this likewise in Acts chapter 6. The choosing of the seven men of good reputation who would take care of the food distribution to a group of Greek-speaking widows. About that, this whole idea of, of a plurality of elders or a group ministry, Richard Phillips wrote this, and this is an insightful look into the ministry, I think. He said, the benefits of this team approach to ministry include emotional, physical, and spiritual support, a balancing of complementary gifts and a combination of fellowship and accountability that reduces the likelihood of a leader's falling into sin. Moreover, the modeling of camaraderie among the ministry team encourages similar fellowship in the church and encourages all believers to participate in the work of spreading the gospel and building the body of Christ. I love that sentence, modeling of a camaraderie among the ministry team encourages a similar fellowship in the church. I, I wish... I wish that you could be a fly on the wall in some of our elder meetings. You, you can't. <laughs> but I wish that you could. Because not an elder meeting goes by that we're not all cracking up about something. Sometimes you. I only mean that kiddingly. There is a genuine camaraderie amongst our elders and deacons. And I think that's one of the reasons why this church is so knit together. Because our elders actually love one another and like serving together. We laugh together and pray together and make hard decisions together and lead together and shepherd together and all of those things. And I think that trickles down into the church. I think that you see it even if you don't see it. Paul is not writing in this letter or ministering alone to the saints. It's important that you understand that I might be the one up front, but I am not alone in this ministry either. The Lord has appointed faithful men to co-labor alongside me in this ministry for your good and his glory. And I praise God for that. He continues, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Most modern people today hear that word church and they think of the building. Um, and that's actually a valid use of the word, but here it's much more significant, right? In fact, Paul's, Paul's usage here of the word to the church, it actually connects the saints of Thessalonica with the saints of old, with the saints of Israel. See, see, while, um, uh, while this word, it's the word ecclesia, it, it can mean simply uh, an officially called out or summoned assembly of citizens, the assembly it is sometimes translated. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used to describe the people of God whether they were assembled for worship or not. 
So, for example, at 1 Chronicles 28.8 says this, Now, therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, that's the word, the ecclesia, the church of the Lord, and the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. In, in light of Paul's training and Paul's, Paul's heritage as a Jewish man, as a, he calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees before Christ, it is clear that he's thinking of these Christians as, in Thessalonica as members of the assembly of the Lord, as members of the people of God. This predominantly Gentile church has been grafted into those who have believed by faith. And we know this. We know this because he says down in verse 4, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. They are loved by God and chosen by God. But if there's any, if there's any confusion as to which assembly this is written to, Paul makes it very clear. See, the Thessalonian synagogue... They saw themselves as the true assembly of the Lord. And yet they rejected not only Paul, but they rejected the Lord's apostle, they rejected the Lord's Messiah, and they rejected the Christ sent by the Father. And because they have rejected the Son, they've also necessarily rejected the Father as well. And so Paul is very specific. He's writing not to those who rejected his gospel message and then ran him out of town, but rather to the assembly of the Lord, the church, in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, typically in Paul's writing, um, when, he, when he's referring to those who are saved... Paul will often use the term in Christ, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ or in Christ Jesus. And that idea of being, of being in Christ, that, that's connected to Jesus' own teaching. In, in John chapter 15, verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But here, Paul includes Paul includes the Father in the formula here. And this has two meanings, and really they're both correct. See, the Thessalonian church, they dwell in the presence of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 reminds us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The church lives in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. But in addition to that, this also means that the church has been brought into being by God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Both, uh, both the Father and Jesus are crucial to the origin and ongoing life of the church. Just, just briefly notice this as you look. look. Look down at verses 2 to 10. I'm not going to read them, just kind of let your eyes roll over those verses. Paul lays out in those verses his thankfulness for the Thessalonians. But verse 4 
puts their faith directly in the lap of the Lord. He chose them. And so in verse 2, Paul is thankful to God for them. Paul is thankful to God for them. We give thanks to God always for you. The Lord is doing this work. Just as it was the Lord who, who had, just as it was the Lord who actually was the one who had planted and, and established the church in Thessalonica. It really wasn't Paul, Savannah, or Timothy. They were just the, the, the vessels that did the work. It was the Lord. The church exists because of the divine initiative of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to consider one other, one other point about this phrase. In his younger years, in Paul's younger years, Paul, trained as a Pharisee, he would not have dared to breathe the name Yahweh. So afraid were the, were the Jews of, of accidentally taking the name of the Lord in vain that they wouldn't even say it. Yet here he is connecting God and Jesus together as a compound object of this sentence. That means they're inseparable. That whole concept was one of the reasons the Pharisees hated Jesus because he called him his father, making them one. God says, Paul says rather here that they are inseparable. He does this repeatedly throughout these letters. Just look at chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May the Lord make... Uh, you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, that he may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Paul has connected them together inseparably. And the fact, the fact that he doesn't actually even see the need to explain this here, he just says it, we can confidently assume that this was the whole point of his missionary preaching. We know that it was of Peter's, for example. In fact, in his very first sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Or we could put it this way. Maybe, maybe Paul really did preach the book of Hebrews. Listen to the opening. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul is saying, as other New Testament writers do, that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. And because of this, he also issues his customary greeting, uh, blessing, and promise. Grace to you and peace. Because of who God is and who Jesus Christ is, Paul can say to these people, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. That is the, the greeting that opens all of Paul's letters. 
Although I will tell you, he throws mercy into the mix when he writes to Timothy for some reason. Grace, mercy, and peace to Timothy. But when Paul writes all of his other letters, he says some form of grace to you and peace. Commonly during this time, a more frequent Greek greeting in letters was just simply greetings. And actually, the Greek word for greetings sounds very similar to the Greek word for grace. And I will tell you, both James and 2 John do this. They, they, they both start with greetings. That was a common greeting of the day. A literal translation, though, for that is actually rejoice. But they didn't really mean it. S- sort of like when we say, hey, how are you, to some stranger at a gas pump. We're not really asking them how they are. It's just a greeting. So the literalists can calm down just a little bit. I don't really care how you are. It's just a greeting. Okay? That's sort of what's going on here. It's just a greeting. Now, Hebrew letters of the time, if a, if a Jew wrote in Hebrew, um, they tended to open with the word shalom, which literally means peace. But again, it's come to be just sort, of a, just sort of a polite greeting. It's not something they actually mean, typically. But the Apostle Paul wasn't content with wasting words on meaningless greetings. And so he adopted them and Christianized them, so to speak. Gordon Fee said in, in his commentary, he said that this was a marvelous example of Paul turning into gospel everything he sets his hand to. This is not just some some rote Christian greeting. Rather, this is a deep gospel truth for both Jew and Gentile. Grace to you and peace. Rejoice, shalom. In fact, when when we think of Christ's salvation, we ought to think of receiving peace with God. Peace. One of the major themes of the Bible is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And not only that, but also that the wages of sin is death. And so our greatest need is to be restored into a relationship of peace with our Creator and our Judge. And yet we face His wrath, but we need His peace. And so the Father has sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why? Because in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. This peace is only, only through the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace is God's favor when we have earned only condemnation. We are due the wages of our sin. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God forgives us and makes us his children. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Salvation is all of grace. For all have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So find comfort today in this. This statement is both true for our blessed current condition, where we sit today. If you are in Christ, if you are God's, if you are Christ's, if you have accepted, believed in Jesus Christ as Lord, grace to you and peace. If you've not, that statement isn't true. You do not face peace, but wrath. But not only is it true for where we are currently, for his people currently, it's also a guarantee of our future blessed hope. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you. Peace. Grace to you. Peace. We long for that. And it is only through God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. Pray with me. Lord, those two little words... Grace and peace. Even in our day, we are at danger of taking them for granted. Reading a letter like this and just skipping over it to get at the, the meat of the letter. And yet this is a deep gospel truth that you have given to us through Jesus Christ. That we are a part of the saints of old. The church of the redemption Bible church of, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. That this is true for us who have trusted in you. Father, as we come to the table, as we come to eat and drink and so proclaim Christ's death until he returns, we come thankful. We know that the Apostle Paul in his instruction to the Corinthians tells us that, that Christ gave thanks for the bread. Father, we give thanks for the bread of Christ. We give thanks that Christ's body died on the cross for our sins. That he bore our sins. That he was buried and raised again on the third day for our sins. We are thankful that he was raised. We are thankful for the, the cup of the new covenant blood of Christ and so Lord we eat and drink and so proclaim his death until he returns holding fast to the promise of the covenant that you are our God and we are your people 
We rejoice in these things, Lord. We pray that you would continue to transform us to Christ's likeness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.